Good morning, brothers and sisters. Hey, if you were visiting us for the first time or the second time or even the third time, I want to welcome you to this gathering of Christ Covenant Fellowship. If I haven't met you, uh, I would love to meet you after our service. Uh, Say hello, introduce myself, and get to know you as a church. We've been studying the letter, well, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Uh, So we're in the letter of Philippians, book of Philippians. It's in the New Testament towards the end. We're going to be in verses 12 through 18 of chapter 2 today. So Philippians chapter 2, 12 through 18. Be our text. I'm going to read this for us. We're going to ask God to work in and through preaching of his word. Philippians 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Ask God to help us. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for your word. Father, we thank you for the the way that it transforms us, the way that your spirit works through your written word, the power that it has. So, Father, I ask that you would would change us, that each and every person gathered here today would leave different than they walked in. Father, that we would be moved to pursue the gift of holiness, that we would move towards the call to obedience. And Father, we need your help to do so. So Father, what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, would you make us? What we have not, would you give us by your grace, for your glory? In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen. Salvation apart from obedience is unknown in the sacred scriptures. Apart from obedience, there can be no salvation. For salvation without obedience is a self-contradictory impossibility. It's a quote from A.W. Tozer. 
that I think is very helpful for us today. The title of today's sermon is A Call to Christ-like Obedience. A Call to Christ-like Obedience. And to many, obedience is a four-letter word. Something we don't want to hear, that we've got to obey, that we've got to do something. Um, Some suggest even that, you know, you're being legalistic when you say, you know, there's any type of obedience when it comes to the call of Christ or any type of Christian conversion. But as is the case with many passages in Scripture, today we will see Paul exhort the church. He exhorts these brothers and sisters to obey the God who has saved them. There's an obedience involved here. As we walk through verses 12 through 18 of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, we're going to take note of three observations. First one is this. We're going to see the basis of Christ-like obedience. Second observation we will make are the effects of Christ-like obedience. And the third will be the joy. Christ-like obedience. There's joy to be found, brothers and sisters. Last week, we looked at verses 5 through 11, uh, which is known uh, to many as the Christ hymn, because we get a, a, a beautiful framework of who our Lord and Savior actually is. And if we refresh our memory for just a second and look back at verse 8 in chapter 2, we read that it says, he, speaking of Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what we see there in this verse is that our Savior's unmatched, unequaled, unparalleled, perfect obedience to God the Father, to fulfill that which he came to do, which was to satisfy God's wrath towards God's people and save a people for God's pleasure. And who are God's people? Got to answer that question here, right? Well, God's people are those who trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation, right? And the, the ones that acknowledge his lordship, and then follow Christ as his disciple. And this act of obedience, this concept of a humble submission to God's will is now picked up here in verse 12 as Paul now turns his attention to the people, to his reader, to the recipients of this letter as he calls them to now a Christ-like obedience in their own lives. So he sets Christ as the example, and he says, now, church, you do this as well. But the basis of this call to obedience rests on the results of our Savior. Amen? We read in verse 9, so... Christ's obedience, right? He humbles himself to the point of death. 
even death on a cross. And then in verse 9, it picks up, it says, therefore God, therefore God has highly exalted him. It's good news for us. Bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We looked at that last week. So we see this word therefore, though. And whenever you see the word therefore, you got to look and see what it's there for. You, you must take note. It's one of the most important words in the Bible when it comes to the Christian life and how we live in obedience to Christ. The word therefore uh, literally means uh, as a result of. It, it means uh, for that reason, you could say. As a reminder from last week, Christ's exaltation was a result of his obedience. He obeys, he's exalted. He was going to obey, right? He's God, knows what he came to do. He gives his life as a sacrifice. And then we just read, therefore, God exalts him. And our text today, it starts with another therefore. It says, therefore, which leads us to our first observation. So what is this basis of Christ-like obedience? Now look, let me go ahead and tell you, we're going to spend most of our time here, okay? Um, so I'm going to spend a lot of time looking at this first point. Um, that's not going to be the case for the other two. We're not going to be here for two hours, all right? I mean, unless you want to be. I'll preach that long. <clears throat> Verse 12, let's read that. Therefore... My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we see this word, therefore. So what do we need to find out? What it's there for. So what Paul is essentially saying here is in view of Christ's exaltation, which he just spent time unpacking, what has been done, he says, now listen, now you go and do. Now you do, right? He, he therefore points to the intended result of all that the Christ him proclaims, that Christ is exalted. Now, Paul starts here by commending his friends. Uh, we see this word, he, he uses this word beloved, right? He, he, show, he shows this deep friendship, the, the passion, the compassion, the love between Paul and this body of believers in Philippi. And this should be a reminder to us all that encouraging others towards the pursuit of holiness is a loving thing to do. Uh, Paul issues this kind of balance here, right? He encourages them on what they had been doing. But he says, hey, don't stop now. Do, keep on doing it. He says, hey, good job. Excited for you. You did great. But keep running the race. He celebrates, encourages them. But don't stop. He says, you have always obeyed. He says, so now, not only... As in my presence, not only when I was there, right, you're, you're doing 
the, the stuff. I mean, it's, it's one thing, right? Uh, if, you know, as, as we are kids and around your parents, typically, sometimes, right, do what they say. You get out of their sight, a lot of times it's a little bit harder to, to do, right? So Paul's kind of saying this, hey, yeah, I see some of you college kids smiling, right? Like, yep, it's harder to do. But Paul says, look, there's an importance here of in my absence, while I'm away, continue. He says, even more, you should aim for Christ-like obedience. And let's be, let's be honest, right? Obedience is hard. It's tough. We've got kids, right? I mean, one of the things we really want to teach them is how to obey. I mean, for myself, right? Denial of self. Denial of the things that I want. The, the, even the response, my natural reflex towards things that happen. It's tough. It, it, it's hard work. Uh, when something rubs and gets my natural desires, I mean, I, I don't like it, right? I, I don't like to uh, have to uh, just withdraw from the things that I want to do. It's tough. But brothers and sisters, it is worth it. Uh, commentator G. Walter Hansen says this. He says, when the path of obedience to Christ becomes steep and dangerous, pleasure seekers look for an easier way out. Is that you? He says, religious tourists hunting for sensational entertainment, instantaneous enlightenment, and emotional excitement will jump to the newest ride and take the quickest shortcuts, but they will not be found with pilgrims on the long, hard road following in the footsteps of Christ, who was obedient to death, even death on the cross. What a profound statement, right? It speaks to our day and age, our culture of entertainment. A lot could be said. That's another sermon for another day. We see here that Paul tells his reader that obedience is worth it. It's important. It's hard. It's tough. It's not the easy path that everyone wants to always pursue, but it's worth it. And then Paul goes on to tell his reader what obedience will look like for them. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this passage obviously is considered uh, or has caused considerable controversy throughout the years. And the question here is, like, is Paul contradicting himself? Is Paul contradicting himself? Because Paul's whole theology is built on justification by faith, not by works. But then here he's saying, well, we've got to work out our salvation. So, so how does this work, Paul? Like, what are you doing here? Remember in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. No works involved, so that no one may boast. In Romans 4, 4 
In 5, we read, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So if you do something and you work towards something, like what you get is just what you've earned, is basically what he's saying here. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is actually the one that's counted as righteousness. That's the one that's actually good. So what's the deal, Paul? All right? <laughs> what are you saying? We, we got to work out our salvation, but works uh, are, that we're not going to be justified by our works. What are you telling these Christians? What are you telling us today? What is the basis of Christian obedience? Like, how in the world do we work out our salvation? So essentially what we see here, and this is, this is big stuff. This is why we're going to spend a lot of time here. We see the complexity of the paradox between the divine, the divine sovereignty, right? God's work, the divine, the only one that is, his work in salvation, and then also human responsibility. So we see God's work, our work, and how those two work together. Because look, we are told work here, right? It says work out your salvation. And this text has some individual implications as well as corporate implications. Uh, it's, an, it's a both and text here. It fo- first focuses on the communal conduct of the church, which obviously includes individual people because the church is God's people. The call to work out our own salvation to the Philippians was both the call to them as a church body for them to do something together, but then for them to each one do something individually. Uh, This is kind of supported in some of Paul's other writings where he kind of goes back and forth from that communal to the individual responsibilities here uh, about how they live together in fellowship in Galatians 6, 1 through 5. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But then he goes back and he says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Then he goes back, bear one another's burdens. So there's a communal, fulfill the law of Christ. Goes back, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, for then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. So we see Paul, I mean, this is, this is just Pauline writing right here. And so here we see Paul exhorting each individual to do something. But what is it, right? It's to work out their own salvation. But still, still haven't really answered the question, right? Well, what does that mean? So there's a few things we must consider here when we're talking about working out our own salvation. What does it mean to do that? Well, first, Paul is referring to the totality of salvation, the total work of salvation, not just the initial act of justification. Okay, this is important to note here. 
uh, usually in contemporary like evangelical circles, when we say uh, salvation, we really, uh, what we're really referring to is just the kind of moment you were saved. You know, are you saved? Are you not saved? Uh, have you been set apart? Do you follow Jesus? Are you saved? The justification of that. And that's fine. That's biblical language, right? You're either saved or you're not. Uh, it's one or the other. Luke tells a story in God, uh, chapter 13 of his gospel uh, where Jesus is talking with people and he says, And someone said to him, said to Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Well, strive to enter through the narrow door. He says, For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So we see there's this, some are saved, there are some that are not. So there is a legal declaration that some are saved or justified. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 2.16, Yet we know that a person is not justified, this salvation that means being saved through the works of law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Furthermore, even once justification has been established, there is no way to add anything to your status, okay? Nothing you can do to add to being more justified. You can't do anything to be more saved. You're either saved or you or not. Justification would be a, a legal declaration, right? It's, it's kind of a, a legal a verdict, guilty or not guilty. They, I guess they would just do it on this one side. Just, they don't move it back and forth. The gavel goes on one side. Guilty or not guilty? The biblical concept of salvation is not just limited to justification. The most common biblical view of salvation is the totality of salvation. The totality of it. There are three tenses. If you're taking notes, write this down. To the framework of salvation from a biblical viewpoint. Okay, You can maybe say three tenses of the gospel. One, we see a past tense. There's a past tense, right, where we have been saved. Something has been done. Go back to Ephesians 2. For by grace, you have been saved. So all who have put their faith in Christ Jesus for his atoning work, him and him alone, have been been saved. The second one we see is a present tense. We are being saved. We are being saved. There's active saving happening as we walk through this life. We read in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
There's something happening. There's a present tense there. And then we also see a future tense of salvation here. That we shall be saved. Amen to that one. That we will be away from this world in perfect harmony with God and one another, sinless perfection. Amen to that. Maybe I'm just the only one that knows how wretched I am. I don't know. We shall be saved, Romans 5, 9 says, right? Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. So we, we see that past tense. Much more shall we be saved. Shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? This points to the, the, the final coming, the final day when, when Jesus Christ returns, not as the lowly, humble servant, but as king. Waging war. The wrath of God. We will be saved from that. Amen. There's only one way salvation. There's one way and one way only. And that is in and through Jesus Christ. And what occurred in our past, what works itself out in the present and comes to consummation in the future is all a part of the totality of salvation here. So we add nothing. We add nothing to our salvation by any human effort. It is all God's work. But we see that Paul does not say that human activity isn't involved somehow. There's a way that it's working out. What Paul is alluding to is the fact that Christians should aim to achieve or accomplish something. Is what this goes back to. Uh, this word uh, to work out means to bring about something, to kind of show proof, to produce, to create. And Paul is essentially saying that there is a conscious activity in the lives of Christians as they continue to walk in obedience as a result of their salvation. Um, you know, there's like a lot of these Christian phrases that people use all the time, right? You know, I'm going to let go and let God. Or, you know, I just need my coffee and Jesus. If that's you, I'm not hating on you. But, you know, Jesus, take the wheel. You know, I'm going to sit back and just kind of let Jesus do it all. And that's good, right, in a, in a way. Uh, but it's not really biblical language. I mean, there, there's, there's a sense that like, yeah, we, we rest in the grace of God, yes and amen, perfectly, completely. But when we reduce the call of Christian obedience to some uh, inactive, mindless, effortless endeavor, we reduce the power of Jesus' substitutionary work on the cross to an abstract ideology. It just becomes like this thing up here, Right? It becomes the gospel becomes of what Christ, well, what he did and what he needs to just keep doing for me. You know, what he just kind of, I'm going to just sit back and be passive. And that's not the gospel. We're to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Uh, Paul's not the only one that speaks like this. Uh, Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent, 
Like, be diligent. Like, work to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Brothers and sisters, we got to get active. Too much passivity in the world. I'm going to talk to the men for a minute, all right? Brothers, be active in your pursuit of holiness, in your pursuit for your, if you're married, your, your bride's heart, shepherding, loving. If you're a father, man, parenting, be active. I know you're tired. I know you worked hard. I know that. Worked hard all week. You just want to sit back and turn on the game and chill. Well, if there's things that need to be addressed, you don't have that option. The first sin that we see of man is passivity. Adam sits back. He lets it go down. Right? The sin of passivity. There's too many soft, weak men that are just letting things just happen, right? Oh, that's just how she is. That's just how things are. That's just how. Get in your word. Get in Christian community and be a man. Man of God. Be active. Be strong. We are called to actively pursue holiness by continued obedience to our Lord and Savior. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You see this phrase, right? Fear and trembling. Like, what does that mean? I mean, he gives this command. He says, work it out with fear and trembling. Like, it's something you got to do. It doesn't say it's optional. There's no asterisks in, in my ESV up here. I don't know if you've got a different version, it might be, but I don't know. It says, do it. You, you have to go. What this tells us here is that, one, we should have a, a healthy fear of Creator God. The awe-inspiring God who created everything. I mean, we just read, right, every knee will bow. I said this last week, right, some by choice, some in worship. By the grace of God. Every knee will bow to this God. So we, we should have a, a, a healthy fear of Jesus, of God, of the triune God. But this should cause everyone, every one of us, right, to pause and think for a moment. Because the Christian, for the Christian, fear and trembling is not one of withdrawal or we just, you know, we, we run out of fear of punishment. But rather it should cause us to draw close, that, that he would save us. That this powerful God, the one that created everything, each and every one of us would, would save lowly humans like ourselves. See, as we work out our salvation, we stand in awe that, that we are even able to be saved. And, and, and when we fall, when we stumble, he picks us up because he's powerful. Then we see in verse 13, he says, for it is God. This, 
Creator, this one that we're in awe of, this one that we're supposed to stand and work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. He works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Hey, look, I don't know if you're like me, but I am very glad that my salvation is not left up to me. That my daily pursuit is not totally left up to me. And this isn't some mere uh, synergism, right? Like some uh, my works plus God's works and then we'll accomplish it together. No, what Paul is saying here is God is working in you. He's working in you. That's in you, Christian. He's doing something in you. He's changing your will. He's changing your desires. So those sins that you used to do, right, that maybe you didn't think a lot about, that now it's just like something is, I, I don't like doing those things anymore. And even the ones that you're fighting, right, even the things that, you know, you, you ah, I'm trying to get over, I'm making war on my sins, God does that in you. God changes your desires. He, he causes you to then hate them. This hatred and new desire to fight them is in God's work in you, not by something that you do. But see, we do make war based on what is being done in us. Paul says it like this to the church in Corinth. He says, but by the grace of God, right, starts there, the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Then he says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Brothers and sisters, anything you do, Anything you accomplish, any progress you make in war on sin is by the grace of God. Amen. Our working is only possible because of God's working. Or even better, his working is our working. Augustine says this, God makes us do what he pleases by making us desire what we might not desire. He changes us. Are you struggling with sin today? And we're not talking about just the things that everybody sees, right? We're talking about pride. But love of money, greed, power, anger, bitterness towards others, right? Maybe just lash out. There's someone that you're just, you're holding on to something that, you just, I ain't going to let that one go, right? Brothers and sisters, don't sit around like you're powerless, <laughs> like you're weak. Like you just, I'll just, you know, sit around and, you know, just let go and let God. No, make war. 
make war. Do what you have to do. I mean, spend time in prayer. Get off of Netflix or whatever, TikToky or whatever thing you do, and get off your screen and get in the Word and pray and ask God to work. You know, one of the most humbling things I get every week, and it's on Sundays too, is like my, my screen time notification. I'm just like, oh, Lord, repent, right? It hits me like, I think I get it like 8.30 or something. It's like right before like service. I'm always like, all right, Lord, you're speaking to me. Maybe I can change the time on that thing or something. But no, seriously, right? Like, man, it, you know, you, you think of like the Puritans and, and these brothers and sisters that, that went ahead of us. And, you know, why do they write so much rich stuff? Because they have more time off of their screens looking at what everybody else is doing. And more time in the Word and just with themselves in silence and solitude. And, hey, if you got toddlers like we do, I know silence and solitude is, is like it's out there somewhere. But find time, right? Make time. I was talking to a, a brother recently. He's like, I just didn't have time. You ain't going to find time. You have to make time. I've never found time anywhere, right? It just keeps going, passing by. That's past tense, Right? Make time. Make war. Get in your word. Get on your knees. Talk to the Lord. Ask God to work. Get in Christian community. Talk to people. God has given us power. God has given us the church. The church is a gift. This isn't just some optional like Sunday morning activity. You come to get entertained like we read earlier. And so many people do that. I mean, that's why we, we, we put a heavy emphasis on membership. We want to know you. That's why I'm like, when, I'm, when I say, like, hey, I want to meet you after service, I'm, I'm serious. That isn't just like something I put on my notes to, you know, check mark. I want to know you. I want to know how to pray for you. We, we, we love you. Like, we want to pray for you. We want to know your needs. We want to bear your burdens with you. That's what the church is meant to do. Remember what Paul tells young Timothy in 1 Timothy, right after talking about some stumbling blocks, Right? talks about uh, money and different things and pride. He says, but it's for you, O man of God. He says, flee these things. Don't run after those things. He's like, you pursue righteousness. Pursue godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. He says, fight the good fight of faith. And then he says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So where does he fight from? Well, he fights from the eternal life that has been, he has been called to. It is something that has happened or his salvation, as you may call it. See, brothers and sisters, God has secured our eternity. He secured it for us. There's, there's nothing, if you are a believer, there's nothing that can take that away. If you were truly saved, there's nothing you can do to lose a salvation. Because guess what? You didn't earn it in the first place. The one who did, Jesus, God, is not going to let you go. He's going to keep working in you, changing you. 
I love this passage in John chapter 10, right, where there's this group that's trying to corner Jesus. They're trying to, you know, get Jesus to say something so they can entrap him. And Jesus tells him, he says, you don't understand. <laughs> like the stuff that I'm doing, the stuff that I'm saying, like you don't get it because guess what? You're not my people. Here's what he says to him in verse 27 of chapter 10 in John's gospel. He says, my sheep, they hear my voice. He says, I know them. They follow me. He says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. He says, my father, who is the one that actually gave them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And then he says, I and the father, we are one. So, brothers and sisters, what a comforting reminder to us all as we aim to make wars. We see this basis of Christ-like obedience that the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, secures our salvation by what Jesus Christ did for us. The Spirit working in us all for the glory of our Father. Look, it's for His good pleasure, right? God's more concerned with his glory than we'll ever be. He's not going to let you go. He's working in you. He's not going to stop working in you. You know, when new things, uh, you get over one sin, you get over one thing that you've been working on and something else emerges, like, hey, fight. Make war. Don't give up. Paul calls the church here in Philippi. He says, listen, pursue obedience on the basis of God himself, on God's character, Jesus' work on your behalf is the basis of Christ-like obedience. He works. I'm going to give you a quick, uh, just simple illustration um, to close out kind of that thought on the basis of Christ-like obedience, and then we're going to spend uh, five, ten minutes or so uh, looking at the last two uh, points and observations. So uh, this past weekend, yesterday, Friday and Saturday, we moved to a new house. Thank you to everybody that helped me. Um, a lot of help, a lot of hands. We were blessed. Um, my kids, like, they didn't carry anything, right? They didn't do anything. We actually they were just kind of like in the way a little bit. And so we actually, uh, brothers, uh, uh, my brother Brandon um, and his uh, bride Tabitha, uh, they took them for us yesterday and spent time with them. But guess what? My kids get to live in the house, right? They, they got there last night. Uh, their little rooms, first rooms we set up, they get to live there. They didn't do much. I do want them to keep the rooms clean. There's some things that they're going to have to do in that house. They're going to need to obey me. They're going to need to obey their mama. And if not, there's going to be consequences. But when they fall, which they will, I'm going to keep paying the bills. I'm going to keep taking care of them. I'm going to keep loving them. And I'll probably pick up after them a few times, right? Because that's what a good parent does. And that's what God the Father does for us. And he, he's, he's built this home for us, and it's secure. Now, now we live in the in-between, 
and it gets tough, and it's hard, but God's got us. He's not letting us go. He's not going to throw us away. He's not going to kick us out when we mess up. He secured it because guess what? He's the perfect father. So take comfort in that, brothers and sisters. So let's look at our last two observations in verses 14 through 18. We see the effects of Christ-like obedience and then the joy of Christ-like obedience. It says, do all things, in verse 14, without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Here we see the effects of Christ-like obedience. He says, basically, you will become walking testimonies. Like, your, your life will be an apologetic, an argument for the cause of Christ, a, a beautiful showing to a broken world. And what a wonderful opportunity. What a beautiful opportunity we have. See, Paul is saying here that when you obey, when you live different, others see that. They, they notice it. They notice something different about you. At least they should. And when they do, they see it as a light, something in a distance, right? You can see a, a light just like the light just now is the sun. I guess the clouds are going over, and it's coming in and out, right? Beautiful example. And the light is shining. We see. And Paul says here they're seeing you. They will see you. And he gives kind of a few distinctive instructions here, and we're not going to go into full detail about these. But he mentions, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things. Here we see that our attitude towards all things matters. Look, not just the things you like. I don't know about you, but I have a hard time doing all things without grumbling or disputing. It's tough. It's hard. I mean, here we get a clear indication that our lives matter. What we do matters. Our attitudes matter. Our relationships with one another, guess what? They matter. He says don't dispute. Don't have disputes. Don't, don't be bickering with one another. When people claim Christianity and, you know, they're always like bickering or they're always, you know, arguing with somebody all the time, whether it's in the family or, or outside of family or, or maybe you just gossip a lot about them. Maybe you don't argue with them to the face, but you just talk about them behind their back or text, maybe text about them behind their back. That's the, the new thing. I mean, what type of testimony are you giving? Yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. You know, love Jesus, Jesus. Oh, I cannot believe they did that, right? And lashing out. Maybe you just lash out. 
It says, don't dispute. Do all things without grumbling. And this isn't an instruction to live a certain way in order to gain God's favor. It's not what he's saying here. He's not like, hey, if you do these things, then, then you'll be my son, daughter, my children. He says, do this because you are. <laughs> you live different because you are different. Uh, Paul is following the words of our Savior as Jesus uh, responds and speaks to some of his followers as Matthew records. He says to his disciples, he says, you are the light of the world. See where he starts there. You are the light. You're a city set on a hill. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. He says, and it gives light to all in the house. Right? He says in, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. We do because we are. Your position is set in Christ. So we see the effects Christ-like obedience is we become walking testimonies. Living different than those around us. Giving glory and praise to the God who saved us. Not to ourselves. And then we go on and we see there's a joy in Christ-like obedience. He says in verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering among the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So what he gives here is the sacrificial image that was common practice in both pagan and Jewish uh, sacrifices in their time. Uh, what would happen is a priest would offer a sacrifice and then later pour out a sacrificial kind of libation to complement it, pour something on top of it. So what Paul saw the Philippians, the church, as they were to pursue obedience and the way they were living, they were offering a sacrificial offering themselves. So their lives were an offering. And then Paul's saying that, hey, and then if, if I die, because remember, Paul doesn't know the certainty of his fate here. He's in prison. He's writing to this church in Philippi. He does not know the outcome, his destiny. There's a chance that Paul could die. So, so Paul is saying here that, hey, if I die, like you're doing it, and if I die, I'll be a you know, I'll be a drink offering. We don't know if he's definitely referring to this, but what we do see is Paul's humility on display. He says, in other words, as he said before, to live is Christ, 
To die is gain. And this thought here, his thought process in this passage is just joyful, right? I mean, it's rich. It's overflowing. Literally, he says, I rejoice and I co-rejoice with you. It's like, whatever happens to me, joy, right? He has joy in no matter the circumstance, no matter the cost, no matter the stakes, no matter the fate. I will follow Christ. That's what Paul says here. And then he invites them to follow, to join in his joy in obedience when he says, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. It's like, what do you got to worry about? Be joyful. It's secure. The victory is completed. Jesus is king. This imperative to rejoice, to be joyful, takes a shift here towards them. And the rest of the commands, there will be three more commands in this letter that will say to be joyful and it will all be directed to the church. And what we see here is the driving theological reality of the joy of Christ himself. And those that are found in him have reason to be joyful as well. Listen, Jesus' self-humiliation, his super exaltation, are the grounds and assurance of eternal life and victory forever. Forever. And the motivating example to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That is the motivation itself. And obedience to Him is a joyful experience and an expression to a lost and broken world. When we respond different to the things that happen around us, we have different attitudes, mindsets. We point it back to Jesus. We make much of his name. So brothers and sisters, I leave you with the question, where are you finding your joy? Is it in the things of this world? Is it in your sin? What are you pursuing today? tell you from personal experience that man there is no joy that can compete with the joy found in Christ look I tried it all hopefully I'll be able to share my full testimony with some of you that I haven't most of you probably already know it because I have no problem sharing but man there's so much joy to be found in Christ There's nothing that competes, nothing that compares. There's no other comfort than the comfort of our all-sufficient Savior. May we rest in Him and His finished work on our behalf as we strive towards Christ-like obedience as a church and individually. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. We are so undeserving. 
God, I ask that you would be with us. That you would help us today, God, Lord, that we would just strive for Christ-likeness. That we would not sit back and be passive observers, but we would be active pursuing the things that you've called us to, to live different, to love different, to serve one another, to respond differently than the world around us when chaos ensues. Father, I thank you for this church. Thank you for your church. Thank you, Jesus, that it is not dependent on us, but it is finished on the cross. Let that be our cry. Let that be our hope. Let that be our plea. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.